Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On October 29, 1929, the Roaring 20s came to a screeching halt. The American stock market bottomed out, beginning a chain of countless bankruptcies and widespread unemployment that would ultimately lead to the Great Depression, a period of economic stagnation where thriftiness was valued above all else. But not everyone was ready to give up the glitz and glamour of the 20s. Even though she and her family were broke, 25-year-old Star Faithful developed a particularly expensive taste for cruise ships. For Star, being on a cruise was like being in a different world. Prohibition made the sale and consumption of alcohol illegal, but plenty of ships still provided free-flowing booze. She could drink all she wanted, float on the water, and forget the troubles that plagued her normal life. The ocean made Star feel alive, and yet, in a tragic twist of fate, it's also what killed her. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the 1931 death of Star Faithful. Last week, we explored Star's troubled adolescence and rebellious young adulthood. This week, we'll cover the discovery of Star's body and try to figure out what happened to the New York City party girl. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Oh. 
On June 8, 1931, a man named Daniel Moriarty took his daily stroll down the sandy coast of Long Beach, New York. The tiny strip of land right off the south shore of Long Island was a trendy summer getaway at the time. Daniel woke up early to comb the sand for forgotten trinkets and treasures. He hadn't been very lucky that morning. There were no coins and no jewelry, nothing more than a few broken seashells. A storm the previous weekend had scared island visitors away. Without tourists, Daniel had little hope of finding anything worthwhile. Nevertheless, he kept his eyes glued to the ground. He saw a large lump of fabric in the distance. Getting closer, he thought that perhaps a beachgoer had left their blanket on a piece of driftwood. But then Daniel saw what looked like pale white fingers. With horror, he realized that he'd stumbled on a body. Daniel stared at the corpse, his eyes wide. It was a woman. She wore a silk dress, patterned in blue paisley and paired with silk stockings. Her auburn hair was tangled with sand. Her fingernails were bright red, freshly painted. She didn't have on shoes or undergarments. Daniel crouched next to the body. The woman might have been dead, but she still deserved respect. He pulled down the bottom of her dress so her legs wouldn't be as exposed. Then Daniel ran to two nearby beachcombers to ask for help. He was practically incomprehensible, but the men knew something bad had happened. One sprinted away to get a police officer. Soon, Nassau County detectives swarmed the beach looking for clues. The dead woman had no purse or ID. The police had no idea who she was or what had happened to her. That afternoon, Stanley Faithful, Starr's stepfather, sat in his home in Manhattan. He sipped a cup of coffee and read the newspaper. He felt perfectly at ease. Until he saw an article about an unidentified body in Long Beach. The Faithful family hadn't heard from Starr in two days. Starr's disappearance wasn't unusual for her erratic behavior, but still the article made Stanley's stomach drop. He couldn't help but think the worst, so he traveled to Long Beach and spoke to a Nassau County detective. Excuse me, officer. I had a a question regarding the body that was found this morning. Look, pal, the lieutenant told the press no comment, and I don't got nothing to add. I'm not a journalist. Uh, was the woman wearing a blue dress by chance? How'd you know that? Was it Paisley? Who did you hear this from? Oh no. It's her. Who? Star. My stepdaughter. I can't believe it. The officer took Stanley to Harold King, Nassau County's lead investigator. King showed Stanley the Paisley dress, and Stanley said he was certain it belonged to Star. Inspector King then drove Stanley to the morgue. King lifted the sheet that covered the body, revealing the woman's face. Stanley tearfully confirmed what he already knew. His stepdaughter was dead. With the body identified, the investigation jumped into high gear. A local doctor performed the initial autopsy. He found a small number of bruises on Starr's body and a few lacerations on her liver. 
He wrote off the injuries as damage from floating in the ocean. Originally, police suspected Starr died of an accidental drowning or suicide. But Stanley insisted they were wrong. He swore Starr wasn't suicidal, so Inspector King agreed to look into the possibility of foul play. On June 9th, King ordered a second, more detailed autopsy. Dr. Otto Schulze, a renowned medical examiner, found signs of over 100 injuries on Starr's body, including abrasions, scratches, and bruises. He also found another, even more important piece of evidence. Mr. King, I was hoping you would stop by. Whoever it was who did that first autopsy, well, to be frank, he missed quite a lot. Really? Yes, there was water in the lungs, but there was also sand. Okay. What does that mean? When a person drowns, they breathe in water. The place Star drowned must have been very sandy. In other words, very shallow. So she didn't say, jump off a boat? Oh, certainly not. In fact, I'd say she either fell into the ocean unconscious, or someone held her head underwater. Oh, and Mr. King, the bruises on Star's body didn't happen post-mortem. They occurred before she died. I would guess she was in a physical altercation, a fight of some kind. The second autopsy painted a totally different picture of Star's death. According to Schulze, she appeared to have been in a fight before drowning in shallow water. Although Inspector King was still skeptical, the findings certainly seemed to suggest foul play. The district attorney of Nassau County, Elvin Edwards, agreed. He believed Star's death was a murder, but he needed to know more about her personal life and who might want to hurt her. So he set up an interview with Stanley Faithful. Thank you for meeting me on such short notice, Mr. Faithful. Of course. Anything to help the investigation. Let's get down to it. Do you have any reason to believe Star committed suicide? Absolutely not. She loved life. Did she have a bad temper? No, not at all. We got along terrifically. Did Star have any close romantic attachments? None. I can't think of a single man that Star was close to. Nearly everything Stanley Faithful said in the interview was a lie. He made his stepdaughter out to be a model young woman, when in reality she was moody, quick to anger, and had numerous flings with men. Stanley might have lied because he was hiding something, or more likely, he may have just been protecting his stepdaughter's image. In fact, Stanley made it clear that Star was a victim. While he hid her more unsavory behavior, he was very forthcoming about one aspect of her life, her abuse at the hands of 59-year-old Andrew J. Peters. Elvin Edwards was horrified to hear that Star had been molested by her older cousin. He said, Mr. Faithful said that there had been, in the life of this girl, a man, politician who was related to the family and lived in Boston. The man's relationship with her had been of the very worst kind, of the most sordid nature, and by virtue of the circumstances surrounding the contact between Star as a child and this man, he believed that this man was the logical suspect as her murderer, the type of man that would be inclined to do away with her. Edwards agreed with Stanley. Andrew was a prime suspect. 
It wasn't hard to believe that Starr's childhood abuser was also her killer. The same day that Edwards interviewed Stanley, another breakthrough piece of evidence materialized. Otto Schulze, the medical examiner, found no alcohol in Starr's system. This was strange, as she was known to drink heavily. Furthermore, her stomach contained a partially digested meal of steak, mushrooms, and potatoes. According to Schulze, the food must have been eaten three to four hours before her death. Schulze was also surprised to discover a significant amount of alonal in Starr's system. Alonal is a strong barbiturate drug that would make a person dizzy and sleepy at such high quantities. The sedative was rarely prescribed by doctors because it was dangerous and addictive. This made Starr's death even more mysterious. Apparently, on the day she died, Starr hadn't had any liquor, but she had taken a powerful barbiturate. The alonal could account for how Starr drowned in shallow water. If she took enough of the sedative, she might have fallen unconscious. Still, it wasn't clear if Starr ingested the substance on purpose or if she was drugged. Stanley Faithful fervently believed it was the second option. He claimed that Andrew J. Peters gave Starr sedatives like alonal when he abused her. With that information... Investigator King and District Attorney Edwards finally agreed that it was time to turn their attention towards the politician. Up next, we'll learn more about Andrew J. Peters. It's October 20th, 2018, one day until the end of the world. I'm on the compound of a secretive religious organization interviewing a longtime member. Their leader has predicted that tomorrow will be the beginning of the apocalypse. The prediction? Yes, I am prepared. It will purify life from a lot of illusions. When I started working on this story, I was hoping to profile a unique apocalyptic group that had survived through many failed doomsday predictions. But the end of the world was just the beginning. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. I didn't specifically give my consent. I was frozen at the time. The angels, they arranged that he is supposed to have sex with his students. He is an amazing teacher, and also he's a sick f This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. On June 10, 1931, investigator Harold King and district attorney Elvin Edwards traveled from New York to Massachusetts. They were there to scope out the primary suspect in 25-year-old Star Faithful's possible murder, her second cousin, 59-year-old Andrew J. Peters. King and Edwards tried to keep their travel under wraps, but Andrew somehow knew they were coming. When Edwards got to his hotel room, 
The phone rang almost immediately. Hello? Is this District Attorney Edwards? Yes. This is Alexander Whiteside. I have reason to believe that you endeavor to interview Andrew Peters regarding a recently deceased person's star faithful. I'm afraid I do not discuss police matters over the phone, even with legal counsel. I am not Mr. Peters' lawyer. He does not need one. I am acting as his friend. He has assured me he would be glad to give any evidence he had, but he has none. Even so, I would like to interview him tomorrow. Mr. Edwards, a citizen from one state cannot be compelled to give evidence in a case whose jurisdiction is within another state. I trust you now understand the legal situation. The call made it clear that Andrew wasn't going to cooperate, and it made Edwards even more suspicious. He asked Boston area police to tail Andrew. Towards the end of the evening, officers watched the politician pack a number of items from his office and speed out of town. Despite this strange behavior, the further police looked into Andrew, the less likely it seemed that he killed Starr. He was at his summer home in Maine around the time that she died. Still, Andrew Peters was a wealthy and powerful politician. He could have paid someone to murder Starr. Whether the culprit was Andrew, a hitman, or someone else altogether, Edwards was now certain that Starr had been the victim of a homicide, and he was ready to go on the record about it. Mr. Edwards, did you get any leads here in Boston? Are you certain that Starr was murdered? I am certain that she did not commit suicide. Dr. Otto Schulte is of the same opinion. This was a marked shift. The inquiry into Star Faithful's death was officially a murder investigation. In New York, Detective Joseph Culkin searched the Faithful residence for clues. Her bedroom was tiny, but filled to the brim with clothes and shoes. Culkin searched the pockets of all her clothing and came up empty. Then he turned his attention to Star's bookshelf. He pulled out a collection of poems, and a small notebook tumbled off the shelf. Culkin had hit the jackpot. It was Star's diary. As he flipped through the pages of the journal, he realized Star wasn't the girl her family made her out to be. This is the dumbest family. Stanley's pathetic and sick. Mother's pathetic. Tucker is vicious. I got drunk with the right boy. I got horribly drunk. I certainly am a temperamental person. (laughs) Yesterday, I was depressed, and tonight, after a rough fight with Mother, (laughs) I am wildly happy. Oh, Edwin has fallen for me at last. He seemed anxious to spend another night of love. Tonight, I thought how horrible it would be to get old and die. I've decided I shall never get old. The diary revealed that Starr drank heavily and was often depressed. It also confirmed that there were many men in her life, and thus many possible suspects in her murder. According to local newspapers, Starr had trysts with 19 different gentlemen between 1926 and 1929. Extra, extra! Read all about it! Starr faithful, party girl, dozens of paramours! Soon, Star Faithful's name was known across the globe. 
Her story was even featured in Time magazine. With the increased publicity, District Attorney Elvin Edwards felt a massive amount of pressure to solve the case. And soon, he'd make news with a dramatic announcement at Starr's funeral. On June 11, 1931, the faithful family sat in a small chapel in Queens. Along with Starr's biological father, they were the only relatives in attendance. The rest of the pews were filled with reporters and nosy onlookers. Star Faithful's body lay in a brown and white casket. The reverend started reading from his prayer book, and then there was a commotion outside. Two men burst through the chapel's doors. Excuse us, folks. The funeral will be postponed till further notice. Elvin Edwards had ordered Star Faithful's body to be returned to the morgue, stopping the memorial service in its tracks. Edwards needed the corpse because he'd found four men who said they saw Star on June 5th, the night of her disappearance. He needed these potential witnesses to see the body and confirm their stories. But after taking a look, all four backed off their claims. Apparently, they'd been mistaken. Edwards had crashed the funeral for nothing. Detectives were right back where they started. As far as investigators knew, the last person to see Star Faithful alive was Police Sergeant Patrick Dugan. Dugan was working at Chelsea Piers in Manhattan on June 5th. At around 10.20 p.m., Dugan saw Star next to a stocky man who he assumed worked for Cunard Cruise Lines. According to Dugan... Star seemed drunk. After a few moments, the stocky man put Star in a cab and the car drove off. No taxi driver ever came forward, despite rewards offered by the press and the police. Star's whereabouts after 10.20 p.m. remained a mystery. But the stocky man who worked for Cunard Cruises was an important lead. According to Star's mother and sister... Starr was desperately in love with a ship's surgeon named Dr. George Jameson Carr. Perhaps he was the mysterious gentleman. If so, George could give investigators important information, like where Starr's taxi was headed. But George was in Belgium on holiday. It would take several days to contact him, and many more to get him to New York for questioning. In the meantime, the faithful family was getting desperate— and not just for information about Star. The Great Depression had decimated their finances, and they were looking for any way to make money. So they sold their side of the story to the New York World Telegram for $800, the equivalent of about $14,000 today. In the article, Stanley Faithful confirmed that a Boston-area politician had abused Star as a child. He also suggested that the powerful man was a family member. It didn't take long for the press to connect the dots to Andrew J. Peters. Just two days later, Andrew suffered a nervous breakdown and was admitted to a Boston hospital. A few days later, he left the emergency room and traveled to his summer home to avoid the press. The New York Daily News reported Andrew's health crisis scandalously. Peters collapsed completely. His nerves a wreck as the ghost of his past, the ghosts of his sordid affair with Starr, came crowding in on his memories. With his family, the former mayor of Boston is still in seclusion in North Haven. There he lies, broken, disconsolate, 
and inaccessible. As the press frenzy continued, so did the investigation. On June 22, 1931, Dr. George Carr finally reached Manhattan. Inspector Harold King and District Attorney Elvin Edwards couldn't wait to question the man whose star had reportedly been in love with. Surely George could help them find the killer. But George's interrogation did the exact opposite. It rekindled the theory that Starr's death was a suicide. Perhaps the investigation had been a wild goose chase the entire time. Up next, we explore whether Starr's death was a murder or suicide and try to solve the case ourselves. Now, back to the story. On June 22, 1931, Dr. George Jameson Carr arrived in Manhattan on the Cunard cruise ship, the RMS Laconia. When she was alive, 25-year-old Star Faithful was hopelessly in love with George Carr. While he didn't return her affection, he was still fond of her. This personal connection made Dr. George Carr a person of interest in Star's murder investigation. When he stepped off the docks at Chelsea Piers, investigator Harold King and district attorney Elvin Edwards whisked him away to record a deposition. Dr. Carr, can you tell us about your interactions with Star Faithful? I met her on a number of occasions, and she often spoke of confidential matters. Such as? I learned of her experiences with Mr. Peters. She also told me about taking ether and hypnotic drugs. That poor girl. She said she got an enormous kick out of ether. Said it made her forget her past. If what George said was true, it could explain the alonol found in Star's liver. Perhaps she'd taken the drug recreationally. While George did know a suspicious number of details about Star, his alibi was airtight. He'd been at sea on the Cunard cruise ship, the RMS Franconia, several days before and after Star's disappearance. Still, investigators hoped George could shine a light on Star's final hours. Luckily for them, George thought he knew the true identity of the stocky man. I have heard from others in the Cunard company that Miss Faithful was at a party at Dr. Charles Roberts' cabin until late on the night of her disappearance. Before King and Edwards could look into Roberts, George presented them with three letters he'd received from Starr, written in the days preceding her death. In one letter, posted on May 30, 1931, Starr wrote about her depression and her desire to die by suicide. I'm going to end my worthless, disorderly bore of an existence before I ruin anyone else's life as well. I certainly have made a sordid, futureless mess of it all. I'm dead, dead sick of it. Then Starr wrote about both murder and suicide in a letter she posted on June 4th, just one day before her disappearance. If one wants to get away with murder, one has to jolly well keep one's wits about one. It's the same way with suicide. I intend to watch out and accomplish my end this time. No ether, alonal, or window jumping. I don't want to be maimed. I want oblivion. When the press caught wind of the letters, they chalked up Star Faithful's death to suicide. 
Starr's name vanished from tabloids as quickly as it had appeared. But Stanley Faithful wasn't ready to move on. He alleged that the suicidal letters were forgeries. He was proven wrong, but he still believed Starr had been murdered. District Attorney Elvin Edwards also wasn't ready to close the case because there were several inconsistencies in Starr's notes to George Carr. In the May 30th letter, Starr had begged George to see her again, something that wouldn't be possible if she was dead. Starr said she wouldn't take alonal, yet the drug had been found in her system. Something didn't add up. So throughout the late summer and early fall, the police continued chasing leads. Tips came in nearly every day. Most of the information led to dead ends. At various times, Starr was rumored to be a call girl, a gangster's girlfriend, and a burlesque dancer. None of this gossip actually got officers closer to the truth. In October of 1931, police got a possible break in the case. Investigators interviewed several witnesses who claimed to have seen Starr Faithful on June 6th, one day after her disappearance. These informants were sure Starr had been at Tapp's Hotel in Island Park, New York. Island Park is right next to Long Beach, where Starr's body was found. Even more intriguing, Tapp's Hotel was a known hangout for many of New York City's top gangsters. The hotel owners claim they saw a man get rough with Star Faithful before they both disappeared from the bar. Others corroborated the story, but no one was willing to go on record about the man's identity. Investigators suspected that it was Vanny Higgins, a notorious bootlegger and gangster who supplied taps with illicit liquor. In interviews, police tried to get workers to rat on Vanny. Mr. Berg... What can you tell me about this man you saw with Star Faithful? I don't want to get mixed up in a murder scandal. Can you at least confirm you saw Star? Sure, but I'd be of no use in your case. I'm not testifying to nothing. Are you afraid of Vanny Higgins, Mr. Berg? Is that why you're being so cagey? (laughs) Of course not. I'm not afraid of any man. As hard as they tried, investigators couldn't get anyone to go on the record. If Vanny Higgins was somehow involved in Starr's death, he'd scared every witness into silence. Ultimately, police dropped the Taps Hotel angle. Nobody would talk. Plus, officers had no idea why Starr would have gone to Island Park, or how she might have gotten there. With no fresh leads, the investigators returned to an old one. On December 7, 1931, the police finally questioned Dr. Charles Roberts. According to George Carr, Roberts was with Starr on the evening of her disappearance. It's unclear why it took investigators several months to interview Roberts, especially considering that his testimony closed the case for good. How did Starr appear on that Friday, June 5th? She seemed much the same as usual. She was always sort of, what shall I say, unhappy. I think her affair with George Carr was in the back of her mind. She was anxious to go to Paris, to get away from it all. Uh, Did she ask you to help her stow away? Oh, no, not at all. Is there anything else you can recollect from your Friday conversation? She talked about a ship, the Ile de France, 
thinking it over, I'm sure she had a date there at 10 o'clock. She was going to a party on board. The ship was sailing that night to Avra, I think. That's the shortest way of getting to Paris. What did you two have for dinner that night? We had boiled eggs and ham sandwiches. And either milk or coffee. No meat, mushrooms, or potatoes? Uh, no. Was she influenced by some drug when she left you? Not that I observed, no. Now, upon her leave-taking, you escorted her to a taxi? Yes. It was just after 10 p.m. I did not give any address to the taxi man, and I did not hear what she said to him. That's the last I ever saw of her. I'm sure it was in her mind to go to the Ile de France. Robert suggested Starr was desperate to get to Europe. The police also knew that Starr had tried to stow away on a cruise ship before. From those two facts, District Attorney Edwards concocted a new theory. The DA's office theorized that Starr had stowed away on the Ile de France. She emerged from her hiding spot delirious from alonal she'd taken recreationally. Somewhere on the waters off Long Beach, she'd gone to the edge of the ship and either jumped or fallen to her death. This theory was never publicized, but it was enough to satisfy police. On December 7, 1931, the inquiry into Starr's death was closed. But while Edwards accepted the Ile de France theory, this explanation for Starr's death was extraordinarily flimsy. During the investigation, police questioned several crew members and passengers on the Ile de France. No one remembered seeing Star Faithful. There was also a major issue with the theory's timeline. The Ile de France departed from Manhattan at 10 p.m., the same time Star ended her visit with Roberts. She couldn't have stowed away on the ship in mere minutes. The geography also made no sense. The Ile de France was docked right next to Dr. Robert's ship. Star wouldn't have needed a taxi for a two-minute walk. Lastly, it's unclear where Star would have gotten the alonal that was in her system when she died, and when she would have had time to eat steak and potatoes. It's hard to believe she had a sit-down meal while stowed away on a ship. Clearly, this explanation was insufficient, and a lot of people knew it. Morris Markey, a writer at The New Yorker, had his own theory, one based on Starr's tumultuous sex life. It is not too fantastic to suggest that on the final day of her life, Starr allowed herself to be picked up by an attractive stranger, and that she agreed to his suggestion that they go to Long Beach. I think they did not go to a room, but found a lonely spot on that almost endless stretch of shadowed sand. She discarded all her clothing except the thin silk dress. And then, I think, she teased this unknown man beyond endurance. He mauled her, perhaps into unconsciousness. Then he was frightened because he had mauled her and decided that she would never tell of it. So he took her down to the water's edge and held her head under. Besides Starr's body being found in Long Beach with no undergarments, there's not much evidence to back up Markey's hypothesis. Although if Markey was correct, Starr's death was a tragic repetition of the sexual violence of her youth. Jonathan Goodman, the author of The Passing of Star Faithful, also proposed an elaborate theory to explain her death. 
Goodman believed Starr had been the victim of a blackmailing scheme gone wrong. Starr was abducted, driven to Island Park to Taps Hotel, the favorite watering place of the Vanny Higgins gang. Starr was treated quite well at first. She was given a meal and was provided with a lonel. She was told she had no need to be frightened. Once she had dished the dirt, every speck on Andrew Peters, she would be driven back to Manhattan. She talked. But Vanny Higgins was not satisfied. And so Vanny Higgins tried to beat the truth out of her. Goodman's hypothesis had some supporting clues. Rumor had it that a Boston-area gang had blackmailed Andrew Peters out of $30,000. If that was true, it stands to reason that a New York gangster like Vanny Higgins might want in on a blackmailing scheme of his own. Plus, multiple witnesses claim to have seen Star Faithful in Island Park at Taps Hotel the night after her disappearance. The only problem is, none of these bystanders agreed to go on the record. So, to this day, Star's death remains an enigma. It might have been a terrible accident, a tragic suicide, or a cold-blooded murder. With all the available evidence, I think Star's abusive cousin, Andrew J. Peters, was responsible for her death. Star knew he was a predator, which made her a threat to his political career. Even though he was in Maine at the time of her death, he still could have orchestrated her murder. I'm not so sure. I think the theory that Vanny Higgins' gang was involved makes more sense. They hung out in Tapp's hotel, and multiple witnesses saw Star there. The gang could explain a lot. They might have treated Star to a steak dinner and given her a lonel to gain her trust and get information about Andrew Peters. Then, when they had enough information for political blackmail, they might have killed Star to keep her from ratting out their scheme. Whatever the truth about her death may be, Star Faithful's life was defined by a tragic cycle of abuse. Beginning when she was just 11 years old, she was molested by her adult cousin. She could never fully heal from the physical and psychological trauma that Andrew Peters inflicted on her. Whether she died by accident, suicide, or murder, Star's heavy drinking, drug abuse, and eventual death can be linked to this early victimization. She deserved better from start to finish. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Star Faithful, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Passing of Star Faithful by Jonathan Goodman extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Cameron Nicod, Albert Park, Ellie Schiff, and Jen Wong. 
Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. The only way to get to heaven was to allow him sexual activity with me. These are not the people that you would normally associate with a cult. Do you think I need to be worried for my safety? I definitely think you should be prudent. This is Revelations, a Spotify original from Parcast, premiering Sunday, October 3rd.